What do you think it means, really, to be rich? There was a young Midwestern boy, we'll call him Robert. Robert's parents were farmers. Robert's grandparents were farmers. Robert's great-grandparents, you guessed it, were farmers. His great-grandparents had bought the farm kind of as a hobby. They wanted something to do after school with their kids, and so they decided to buy a farm, and the kids loved it so much that when Robert's great-grandparents died, his grandparents kept it and decided that not only did they want to keep it as a hobby farm, but they wanted to keep it as more of a business. And so they grew the property. They bought some property around the original property, and they ended up being the biggest small farm in town, and then Robert's parents inherited the farm, and they had a lot of business sense. So they bought out some more farmers around the edge of their parents' land. They rented out some of the farmable land in the community. And before you knew it, this farm that started out at about 75 or 100 acres ended up being 15,000 acres big. Robert's family wasn't much for church. It always seemed a little hokey to him, but Robert started going because he thought the girls were cute. Whatever works, right? But he stayed because something about the gospel seemed kind of winsome, seemed kind of beautiful. But the problem was it wasn't quite tangible enough to Robert. So one day he went into his youth pastor and he says, man, I really, I've been hanging out here a long time. I'd really like to become a Christian, but the problem is every time I feel God inviting me to do so, I don't really know what the gospel is. I can't quite grab onto it. And the youth pastor looked at him and said, well, Robert, most of faith, most of the whole Christian life, really, is just doing the next right thing that's in front of you to do. And so that day, Robert decided that the next right thing for him to do was to get saved. So he prayed with Pastor Mike. He went back home. And the next right thing for him to do was to give up a sin pattern that he'd had in his life for a long time. The next right thing to do was to join a small group. And before you knew it, Robert was one of the foremost leaders of the youth group in this church. He was leading small groups. He was asked to lead a student leadership team on behalf of the church. He realized in his school that there was a lot of need for small groups too. So he started the Fellowship of Christian Athletes there. Both the the church's student leadership team and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, by the time Robert graduated, were some of the biggest ministries across town. It became clear to everybody who knew Robert that he was one of the best disciplers, the best church leaders around. And then he asked at the end of high school, he went back to the Lord and he said, Lord, what's the next right thing to do? His parents came to him and they said, we'd love to pay for your college as long as you major in something that has to do with agriculture. So he went, he majored in agricultural studies and business administration, hoping that after he graduated college, he would come right back to the farm and continue to do just what his parents had done to scale it up, to make it more successful. And he went to college freshman year. He got really involved in a local church, ended up forming a student leadership team because he realized that that university needed more of a church presence on it. He multiplied small groups. He, again, in this community, became one of the foremost disciplers, one of the best church leaders that the community had known. He met along the way a girl named Leslie. Leslie loved Jesus deeply and, oddly enough, in these times, had always dreamed of becoming a farmer's wife. It was perfect. They started dating, and just after their junior year, just before their junior year got engaged, just after their junior year got married. They went into their senior year, got halfway done, and Robert again went back to the Lord and said, Lord, what's the next right thing to do? 
Robert heard from the Lord something he never anticipated. The Lord said, I want you to do just what you plan to do. I want you to go back to the farm that your parents said they would give you right after you graduated. I want you to take it, and I want you to sell it. Instead of keeping the money, though, I, I want you to give all of it away to the poor. Robert wanted to do it because every time he heard the Lord's voice before, it sounded a lot like this. He knew it was from the Lord. But then he imagined going through that old screen door porch and talking to his parents, looking them in the eye and hearing them say, don't you dare give up what our family has worked for generations to give you. He imagined going back to Leslie and telling her that everything they had discussed, all their plans, everything they talked about in premarital counseling about the way that their life was gonna be would be thrown out the window. Since the farm had grown, it had employed eight full-time people, and then because it was a produce farm, 150 seasonal workers who had told him just the summer before that all of their dreams had been made possible because of the income that they were able to get from working on this farm. One told him that he was able to go to college. He was able to get that last little bit of savings because of the, the work that he was able to do on that farm. Another said he had made all of his most formative connections and relationships on that farm, and he imagined going back to those people and telling them that this sacred place that they'd come to love wouldn't be there for him anymore. What do you think Robert did? What would you do? This is actually the situation that the rich young ruler finds himself in in Mark 10. He comes to Jesus because, as many of you know, Jesus has a reputation in the New Testament for telling his disciples the next right thing to do. A man is lowered through the roof onto the floor, and he tells that man, get up and take up your mat and walk. Peter wants to get out on the water, and he says, come out on the water and walk. Young boy brings his lunch to Jesus, and Jesus multiplies it and tells his disciples to go back and gather it. Jesus has a habit of looking at people and telling them the next right thing to do with authority in a unique way, right? And so the rich young ruler comes to Jesus hoping that he'll receive some extraordinary insight. He, he walks up to Jesus, he runs up to Jesus, kneels with urgency and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus turns to him and tells him everything he's already heard since second grade. He says, honor your father and mother. Don't commit adultery. The rich young ruler looks back at him and says, all these things I've done since I was a boy, which, by the way, is exactly how he knew it wasn't enough. The rich young ruler just wasn't rich in wealth. He was rich in good deeds rich in obedience. He had amassed great wealth and great faithfulness, which is exactly why he knew it wouldn't satisfy. So he comes to Jesus because something's missing. What do you think it was? Was it connection? Do you think uh, the rich and ruler comes to Jesus and says, I've been doing the next right thing for my entire life, but I've still never heard God's voice? Do you think it was meaning? Maybe the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he's thinking, I've done the next right thing all my life because my Sunday school teachers and my pastors have told me that that's what I need to do. But I'm not quite sure anymore. Do you think it was love? Maybe the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, I've been doing all the things that I know 
to be obedient to God. But when I pray, I'm still not sure if he smiles at me. And in fact, I don't even know if the people that act like they love me around me love me or if they just love my money. What do you think was missing? The text actually doesn't tell us. What it does deliver is one of the most beautiful sentences I've ever heard in the New Testament. It says, and Jesus looked on him and he loved him. What do you think Jesus saw? What do you see? Growing up, when I looked at this text, I was pretty convinced that the rich young man was actually kind of a pompous jerk. I thought that he's coming to Jesus to kind of make a public exhibition of his faithfulness. He comes to Jesus so that, he, so that Jesus will say, honor the commandments, so that he can in turn say, I've done that ever since I was a kid in front of all the people that are watching. But when I read through this text again, I realize that actually maybe that's not the case. The rich young ruler comes with urgency, kneels at the foot of Jesus and says, Jesus, I'm hungry. What's the next right thing to do? The word look in this passage when referring to Jesus says that Jesus looks at the man, not just like somebody looks at somebody next to them and says, hey, hi, hello, but as a doctor who looks at someone and diagnoses their deepest need. It's almost as if Jesus peers into the man's soul and says, everything that you've been doing, the law, the prophets, they're all a big arrow toward the kingdom of God. If you want to get all the way in, here's what you have to do. Take all your stuff, take all your privilege, take all your wealth, and get rid of it. That's actually the last sentence I usually hear in this passage, because I'm afraid that Jesus is after my stuff. <laughs> so this passage, when I've read it, from childhood up to a couple weeks ago has always seemed like really bad news because I focus so much on the removal of wealth that I miss the whole back nine of the text. The back nine of the text is the next sentence in which Jesus says, come and follow me. The good news of this text isn't get rid of your money, although God may call you to do that. The good news of this text is that Jesus looks on this man and really does love him. Just like he loved Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul. Mary Magdalene, and he invites him to be his disciple. I've always wondered what would happen in this text if he said, okay. If he turned to the scribe next to him and he says, here's what I want you to do. See my Mercedes over there? Sell it. Go back to my house and put a for sale sign in the front of it. Go to my boat, go to my beach house, go to my 401k, go to my, the 529 fund that I have for my children's education, and turn them out, and instead of reinvesting it, give them to all the people in this community who haven't had the same kind of privilege that I've had. Wonder what would have happened if he went back to his wife and said, honey, we can, we can buy another car, we can build another business, we can get more land, we can rebuild our retirement, we can rebuild our children's education fund. What we can't do is follow this teacher with eyes like stars who's told us everything about the gospel that we've missed for all these years. That's not what happened. This is what the next verse says. It says, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad. 
because he had great wealth. People in Jesus' day, and I think in our day too, consider wealth to be freeing. And they imagine, if only I had a couple grand more a year. What could I do if I just had a little bit more money? But this man left bound for it. Bound by wealth. He came to Jesus hoping for the next right thing to do, and what Jesus gave him was the next wrong thing to do. He came to Jesus empty and left empty because he feared poverty more than he feared emptiness. All my life I've thought that the rich young ruler was uh, an exercise, a, a story, a parable about the importance of obedience. But now I'm realizing that the rich young ruler had been trained for obedience all his life. It wasn't obedience, it was his problem, it was values. When I was in youth group, I can remember being convinced that we played games for no other reason that they were an insurance liability. And we played this one game, and one of our favorites was called Trade In, Trade Up, in which, this is a terrible idea, you'd go into neighborhoods with something small, knock on people's doors, and ask for something bigger and better that was an improvement on what you had. And I can remember this one Wednesday night, our youth pastor told us we were gonna do this, and I thought I had lucked out because we had this guy in our group who was going to technical school to become a radio announcer. He was the only 14-year-old I've ever met that had a rich, deep voice. Okay, so I thought, well, this guy can sell anything. And so we went to the first house and they started us out with baked beans. And so he says, sir, can I interest you in this delightful can of Bush's baked beans? And the guy said, sure. He said, okay, there's one catch. We need something bigger and better that we can take back and show off to our friends. And he said, okay, well, I have this vase that's been in our family for generations. Some of you know where this is going already. I have this vase, We've, it's really ornate. We've held on to it for a long time. And so he brought the vase out and there was something weird about it, it had a lid on it. And so we opened it and there were ashes in it. We said, this guy traded us his grandma. And so we did what anybody would do. We took it and we went out to the front in his bushes and we dumped grandma out, and we said, to dust you shall return. Then we went to the next house, we rinsed it out with some water, and we said, we have a vase. And I, I can still remember that guy gave us this beautiful ceramic mug, and I was pretty content to keep it because I love mugs. I went to the next house, and we traded the mug, and the lady gave us a couch. It was a beautiful couch, it needed reupholster. It was a junky couch. Those of you who are optimistic just see an opportunity for reupholstery, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Terrible couch. And so, but the couch was big, and so we thought maybe if we go back now, we'll win. But let's try one more house. So we went to the next house, and we said, we have this couch. We want to trade it for something bigger and better. Do you have anything you could trade? And the lady said, yeah, I just have to go get it started. And we all thought she was talking about like chocolate cake or something. And if you have a bunch of middle school boys... Nothing's better than chocolate cakes. We're willing to wait. So we stood on the porch, and a couple minutes later, we heard an engine sputter. We said, what is this woman giving us? And so we turn around the corner, and this is what comes out. Yes. We started with beans, and we ended up with a school bus. So we drove back our school bus, which we later found out we couldn't keep, we drove back our school bus, pretty satisfied with ourselves, and all of us joked around, what would it be like if this man came out and said he wanted to trade beans for a school bus? That's how the rich young ruler felt. The rich young ruler was pretty convinced that he already had the school bus. 
and that Jesus was trying to trade him a can of baked beans. The problem was that it was the other way around. The man walked away not because he had an obedience problem, but because he had a values problem. The whole kingdom of God with poverty seemed less to him than his own emptiness with riches. Wonder if the message of this text is that the kingdom of God is God's gift to give to whom he chooses. The rich can't buy it with their riches any more than the poor can buy it with their poverty. All that's necessary is that you have hands that are free to receive it. Sometimes the opposite of rich isn't poor, it's free. I always wonder what might have happened if the man had become the disciple. He could have preached the sermon in Acts 2. He could have taken the gospel to China. He could have been a church planner in Madagascar. We'll never know what great adventure this man missed because his hands weren't free to receive the kingdom of God. What we can know when we leave this place is what we'll do when God calls us to disruptive obedience. You've probably figured this out by now, but the Robert guy that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon isn't a real person. He's you. He's me. He's anybody who finds themselves at the intersection of God's call and the hindrances that come from what God's given them. Robert doesn't have to be a farmer. He could be a school administrator, he could be a teacher, he could be a lawyer, he could be a factory worker, he could be a pastor at a church with three services. My question isn't what Robert does or even what the rich young ruler does. My question is, what do you do when God calls you from everything you've ever known into an act of disruptive obedience? There are a couple questions I'd like us to consider together this morning. The first one is, what's missing from your life with God? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus because something is missing. For him, maybe it was meaning, maybe it was connection, maybe it was love, we're not told. But for you, what is it? Where in your own life can you find a sense of emptiness or a void? The second question is, what is God inviting you to? God's always inviting us into the kingdom. The question is, what's maybe the next wrong thing for you to do? What act of disruptive obedience might God call you to? The final question is, what could you let go of so that you can receive the kingdom? God doesn't ask us to give up every good thing in our life, but he does ask most of us to give something up. Maybe it's money, maybe it's not. Maybe it's proximity to family. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's control. What is it that God would cause you to let go of so that you can grab on to more of the kingdom?